Here's the plan. So we are going to uh, talk about Protestantism tonight and where all the schisms of Christianity came from that we know of today. Um, This is not going to be comprehensive. There's some areas of your notes that we're not going to really get into because we just don't have the time. But I want to try to get you to understand it overall. And then you have all this stuff with you that you can take a look at later to get into more details about it. So we're going to talk about that in particular tonight. And then on page two, we have the timeline of church history. So we're going to go through that a little bit too as we get into this. Um, So that way you can understand that a little bit. Uh, It's a chart that originally was made by Jay, and then I took it and made it better. (laughs) Just kidding. Kind of. I added a couple things in there because I felt that they were really important to know. Um, So thank you, Jay Boffman, for all your hard work, and I can piggyback off of it and make it look a little bit better. Okay. So, all right. So we're going to be talking about Protestantism. This is something, in my opinion, that is a really big deal because I think there are a lot of people out there who will not... Uh, give God a chance because they use the excuse of, well, there are so many different schisms or denominations of Christianity, then if Christians can't get on the same page, why would I want to hear about anything without God? I've heard that before. Um, And there's no doubt in my mind that this is also a tactic of the devil to keep people away from the truth because you can walk into 15 different churches tonight and hear 15 different sorts of doctrines all taken out of the Bible. And so who are you supposed to believe? It's just very, very confusing. So there are people that says, you know what, it's all confusing. Forget about it anyway. You guys all basically believe the same thing. So what's the point? Um, I've heard that from Catholics telling me that we basically believe the same stuff. Rick shared the same thing about Islam. Uh, and it's just not true. It's just not true. So we're going to go through, we're going to talk a little bit about it, where this came from, some of the history behind it, and answer any questions that you guys might have. All right, so on your guys' study sheet, page 22, which is the first page there, Protestantism. Now, this is something that was like a light bulb moment for me whenever I really realized this. Protestant. Protestant. Where did that word even come from and what does it mean? So, look at the first part of it. What, what, what? No, it wasn't prostitute Andy. Our adult police officer. Uh, no. <laughs> no, yeah. There's some things you just shouldn't put out there. Okay. <laughs> Look at the word. Protest. Protest. Yes, that was my next one. Yes. Protest. Protest. <laughs> what does it mean to protest? Not prostitute. What does it mean to protest? This is going on the uh, podcast, by the way. Um, <laughs> protest. Yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. So it can be a peaceful protest or a violent protest, but either way, you're taking a stand against whatever it is. So if you have an issue with something, you take a stand and you vocally or forcefully disagree with what's going on. All right? So when you take this all the way back to 1517, October 31st, you have Martin Luther. He was an Augustinian monk. So he was a Catholic priest and he nailed his 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. The real issue at the time was the protesting of Pope Leo X's decision to sell indulgences in exchange for less time in purgatory in order to pay for the Vatican remodeling expenses. Now, they'll never admit that, but that's exactly what was going on in history. So indulgences, in case you don't know what that is, that's basically that if you committed a crime or a sin against God, uh, like, I don't know, 
backtalking your mom, committing murder, somewhere in between there, um, you could pay money to the Roman Catholic Church to have that sin absolved. That was part of your penance that you could uh, do, and, and that money was then taken, and it was uh, brought into the basically the, the bank of the Roman Catholic Church, and it was used for construction, remodeling. That's why when you go to the Vatican today, have any of you ever been to Rome? Anybody in here? Okay. If you ever have a chance to go, it is absolutely amazing, but it will make you cringe because Vatican is beautiful. I mean, gorgeous. I mean, pristine. The architecture, the the statues, the archaeology that's there, the history that's there. It's just absolutely amazing. And most of it was paid by the blood of people that they hated because they took the money from them or people that paid money to the church to absolve their sins. And that's the truth. They may never admit that, but that's the truth behind it. So you have Luther here who is protesting these indulgences. And then it says, but Luther's theses and subsequent actions broke down the doors of the Roman Catholic Church and paved the way for the Reformation. So he was kind of the guy to put the pry bar into the uh, Roman Catholic Church and to bust it down because no one was able to break apart the power of the Roman Catholic Church and it really just fell to pieces and the first strike was Luther. So God used him mightily. It's important to understand that every denomination that was born out of the Reformation came out of the Roman Catholic Church and its doctrines. That is so critical for people to understand. Therefore, the residue of the Roman Catholic Church still existed in some form or fashion and influenced many aspects of the Protestant religions. So it's not like Martin Luther, because what happened was Martin Luther read the Book of Romans because he was teaching through it. And during one of his homilies or his messages, he ended up preaching through the Book of Romans. And he began preaching salvation through faith apart from works, which is not the Roman Catholic Church. And when he began preaching that, because he believed that, because that's what the Bible said, he got saved. And he started preaching the gospel, according to the Bible, to his people, and people were getting saved. And then the Roman Catholic Church was like, ah, 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 you can't do this. And he's like, what are you talking about? It's in the Bible. And so this started the whole process. But here's the problem. When he broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, because they really wanted him dead, to be honest. When he broke away from them, he still was very Catholic in his doctrines. That's why when you walk into a Lutheran church today... It feels one step away from the Roman Catholic Church because they still kept a lot of the traditions, a lot of the same things. Now, they still believe in the gospel according to the scriptures. They don't believe you have to be baptized to erase original sin as far as the Lutherans are concerned. I'm sure there's some Lutheran churches that go back to that. But that's what Luther taught is that those things are not necessarily true. But Luther didn't like, okay, I'm away from the Roman Catholic Church. Now I'm completely different. And now I look like a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church. That's not how it looked. There is still the residue of the Roman Catholic Church on his doctrines, and you can read it in his writings. And as he progressed in his faith, I know there are things that started to fall off. As with all of us, there are certain things as we grow in our faith, there are certain things we don't believe in anymore because we believe the Bible. But this is important for us to understand. So Lutheranism. Lutheranism. you got Martin Luther. Uh, we've already read a little bit about him there. Um, he was the archbishop um, in, in Mainz, and, and he, uh, he and Pope Leo authorized uh, this archbishop, Albrecht, that's what it was, of Mainz to sell a special kind of indulgence throughout northern Germany in order to pay for the remodeling and expansion of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. 
And then you have Johannes there, a preacher of these indulgences, started selling them to Luther's parishioners near Wittenberg. When a penny in the coffer rings, the soul from Purgatory Springs was the marketing technique that they used to propagate this. Luther felt compelled to contend with this doctrine for three main reasons. Number one, reading and believing Romans 1, 16 and 17, where it says the just shall live by faith in preparation for a lecture for his university students. Number two, fearing that the parishioners would trust in a financial gift for their salvation, which he knew was not biblical. And number three, the unethical tactic of fleecing the local people for the Roman Catholic Church renovations. His contending with the Roman Catholic Church started with the 95 Theses on the door in 1517 and ended in 1521 with his excommunication from Rome and subsequent condemnation as an outlaw after the Diet of Worms, where he refused to recant and stated... Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. Amen. And that was a legit prayer because he knew what he was saying. He was basically writing his own death warrant when he said this and then saying, God help me for what I'm about to say. Amen. And God did end up keeping him alive. But that was a big, big stand to take. But within the Lutheran churches, they believed grace alone, faith alone, scripture alone for salvation, which is, which is true. But they also believed in baptismal regeneration. They believe in confession and absolution of sins to, uh, to pastors. And they still believe in transubstantiation. So when you go into their churches, they get salvation right, but then they get some of these other things that are completely off. And so this is the part that I want to spend most of our time on tonight. Um, and I want you guys to understand this because I know some of you are more visual. And it helps me to see things visually. And so when we take a look at this, um, this might be a little bit small, but I'm going to focus in on some different aspects and kind of walk through this. And please ask any questions that you would like to ask. All right, so first of all, to understand this, the first thing is this. This little triangle is a landmark in church history. So these are big, momentous events that are very, very critical in the process of church history. All right? So as we kind of take a look at this, you've got this. You have Jesus' death, burial, and ascension, 33 AD. You have the apostles. You have the Acts. You have 90, which is when 90 AD, which is when the Bible was finished with the writing of the book of Revelation. Revelation. And that was big. And then once the Bible was finished, then you have this gap of time until about 312. And 312 or 325, this is Constantine, where he married the Roman Catholic Church, uh, basically at that time, to the world. And that's where you had the big compromising of the pagans. And this is where you started having uh, Christmas being December 25th, which is actually a pagan holiday. Um, Easter, which was a pagan holiday, became uh, the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, The statues and different things in Rome that used to be Roman gods and goddesses now became Jesus, Peter, the apostles, Mary, all that. Um, you had the uh, the government within Rome end up becoming like the, the bishops, the archbishops, the pope, uh, the priests, all that. So all that stuff started compromising in. That happened around 312 AD. And then from there, as you kind of take a look at this, this lines up with church history in Revelation 2 and 3. That you have from Ephesus, Smyrna to Pergamos. And it was Smyrna and Pergamos. Pergamos means much marriage. And this is when Constantine married the church to the world and created what's called the Roman Catholic Church. And then there were massive persecutions in Thyatira and Sardis. So during that time in church history, things were not that great. But here's the deal. This is important for us to understand. Because in 325, 312, 325 AD, this was huge. 
because most people, and this is something new for me because my background, I came from a non-denominational church. And so we were considered Protestant. In my mind, there was only two camps. There was always Roman Catholic and Protestant. That's it. You were either one or the other. That's the way I was raised and that's what I knew. And even though I had friends and I knew people that were Baptist, in my opinion, they were Protestant. What's that? You guys have Andy? Well, they just say Catholics. So. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's Andy. He's a former Catholic. Yeah, former Catholics Anonymous. Um, so anyway, so you had those two camps. But then when I started digging and starting to do my own studying and my own history, here's what I found. In 325 AD, when Constantine married the church to the world, there were people that said, no, we're not doing that. That's unbiblical. We're not going to do that. And those people, when you study church history in textbooks and other things, you know what they did to those people? They labeled them, labeled them, labeled them, labeled them. Guess what they labeled them as? Heretics. And I know this to be true because I went to Moody Bible Institute. And when I studied church history at Moody Bible Institute, they labeled these people heretics. But here's the thing. People that did not join Constantine and become part of the Catholic Church, they were then persecuted. They were the outcasts. And what happened over time is it just got worse and worse and worse to the point where Christians, Catholic Christians, were going into people's houses and they were killing families, killing men, women, and children because they might have contained copies of the scripture in their home. Terrible. And something that happened all the time. And they labeled these people as heretics because they read copies of the Bible on their own and believed what it said over popes, priests, and other religious leaders. They labeled them as heretics. Now, these people did believe some crazy things. There's no doubt about it. I remember getting into a debate with one of my theology professors, and we were talking about it. And we hit this certain part where there's these certain uh, sect of these heretics that they believe some whacked out doctrines. And so here's what I told him. I said, okay, I hear you. I hear you. But if I'm going to put my lot in with a camp, I have two choices. I'm either going to side with the people that are killing heretics or I'm going to put my lot in with the people that are being killed just because they have copies of the Bible in their home and they're trusting in God to protect them and keep them safe. And yeah, you know why they, they, they believed in whacked out doctrines and why they believed in her, her, heresy? Because they did not have a completed Bible. How could they? When they're running for their lives, if they were to have a completed Bible, that would have been a miracle. You know what they had? They had portions of like John. They would have had maybe the first half of the book of 1 John. They may have had maybe only the book of Romans. They may have had only the book of 1 Corinthians. They didn't have a completed Bible. If you don't have a completed Bible, then you're not going to have the whole counsel of the Word of God. So you're going to believe in some crazy, crazy doctrine. But they were running for their lives. There are stories of guys that had copies of the scriptures on the inside part of their leather trench coats and they had them there and they were hiding them or they had different things hidden in their houses and they were killed for that. They were imprisoned and killed. Their families were tortured. Their children were murdered just for having a part of First Peter written on the inside part of their coat. Great Christians. No. I don't want to be sided with those people. Are you kidding me? I'd rather be a heretic any day than to be found murdering other Christians just because they wanted a copy of the Bible in their home. But that was the day and age in which they lived. 
So that's the kind of stuff that was going on there. And so in my mind, the way that that looked then, and this is crazy to think about it, is it was kind of like this. For those of you that have been around, I've done this a few times. But you have like this whole, you know, 90 AD in the Bible, you had Jesus and all that, 90 AD, Bible's finished. And then things kind of went along swimmingly. And so all of a sudden you hit here and you got 15, 17 AD. Where now all of a sudden we're going to get it right. You know what I mean? It's weird. Like Jesus, apostles, everything's fantastic. And then all of a sudden now we find out there's a problem right here. So let's break off and now become Protestant. No. Where did the problem come from? It didn't start here and end here. It started back here. And then massively grew into some diabolical monstrosity that became unbiblical. And then Roman, uh, the Roman Catholic Church hated Luther because he finally recognized it and had the guts to actually stand up for it at the cost of his life to break apart from it. Which is awesome. I'm glad he did that. But people just want you to think that when you read history. They just want you to think everything was fine up until 1517. And that's not true. Because even though the Roman Catholic Church had gone completely wayward, and, and Martin Luther tried to get it back to the truth, but he didn't get it all the way there, there was always a group of people all along that stayed faithful to the true gospel, that stayed faithful to Jesus Christ, that were multiplying disciples. There's always a group of people that have done it. And throughout church history, that's these people here. They were nicknamed Anabaptists or rebaptized, which is what Anabaptist means. And you have the Albigensians, the Waldensians, the Hussites, the Lollers, the Donnas, the Paulicans. These people are our heritage as, as Baptists. These people believe the Bible. They were willing to take a stand against anyone who went contrary to the scriptures, hazarding their own lives and the lives of their families to keep what we have today. The reason why we have what we have today is because of people like that that ran, I mean literally, ran for their lives, went in caves and dens in the woods, in the back places to get away from the Roman Catholic Church because they were pursuing them, persecuting them, and killing them. So we have much to thank to those people. Much to thank to those people. Okay, so talking about Protestant then. So we've got to hit this. There was one point that the Roman Catholic Church couldn't even contain itself from within, and you got the split in 1058 where you have the Eastern Orthodox Church that split. And um, if you're a student of the Bible, this kind of goes back to um, the uh, statue in Daniel where you have the head of gold, um, the chest of silver, you have the belly of, of uh, what is it, brass, and then you have the legs of clay mixed with iron. Oh, we missed iron in there. Anyway, but the legs, yeah, yeah, and the legs of iron, that's right, and the feet of clay and iron. And so those legs splitting apart, that's the Roman Catholic Church, it splits into two separate entities uh, but they all come from the same thing. So that's kind of going back to that. But you have the Western and the Eastern Catholic Church, Orthodox and Roman Catholic. And then you have the 1517 where Luther decided to take a stand. Take a stand. All right. And then from there, after he decided to part ways with that, you have some varying branches. And there's more than just this, but this is the major branches. Um, you had Lutheran, which started in 1520. Uh, you had the Church of England or the Anglican Church in 1521. You had the Presbyterian Church in 1530 and the Mennonites in 1531. Now, Mennonites are also within our heritage too, but there are some parts of the Mennonite movement that are traced back to Protestants and Protestantism as well. And then out of the Anglican Church came the Methodists in 1735. Um, these would be guys like um, uh, John Wesley um, and his brother, uh, George Whitfield, 
Um, and some of those guys came out from there. And then you had the Puritans or the Separatists in the 1600, and a lot of those guys came over at the founding of our country. Uh, and then out of the Methodists, you have the Nazarene and the Wesleyan come from that as well. And so that's where, at least as a, as a general rule, this is where they come from and where they kind of schismed off from. And then going back down to, uh, what's the deal with all this? And I find this very, very interesting. So the Bible is finally produced in English um, in 1611 with the King James Version. And it started with seven previous uh, translations, uh, beginning with, um, um, oh, my mind's going blank, um, Wycliffe. Wycliffe was the first guy to get it in English, and then it kind of progressed from there. But the completed version of the Bible in English was in 1611 with the printing. And uh, what's interesting about that is that when you compare these two, so you have 1517, and this is not a coincidence, by the way. 1517, you have the Protestant Reformation here. And then shortly thereafter, not even not even 10 years later, they begin producing Bibles in English. And then about 100 years later, they end up producing it in, um, in, in the King James Version in 1611. And around the same time, the printing press from Gutenberg was then uh, just miraculously invented, by the way. So that way it can be mass produced instead of just written out. And that's why the Bible could propagate throughout the entire world at such a rapid rate because they invented the printing press and it didn't take um, basically years to copy and copy and copy and copy the scriptures. There's no coincidence behind that. God put a, uh, a schism in the Roman Catholic Church so that way he could open up a door for the Bible in English to be propagated throughout the entire world, which is absolutely amazing. Absolutely amazing. And then um, we talked about the Anabaptists and those people that are part of our heritage that were persecuted to no end and died. And there's so much blood that are on the pages of our Bible, and we thank them, and we have everything to thank these people for that. And then uh, just kind of take a look about where that sits within church history right there too. And then from there, uh, the descendants of the Anabaptists, this is where you have uh, Baptists, the Friends Movement, the Amish, the Brethren, the CMA, non-denominational, and Bible churches come from there too. And then from there, there's uh, the schism there too, which around the time of Laodicea, which is not a coincidence either. You start to find other schisms like the Mormons, Church of Christ, Christian churches, Seventh-day Adventist, Jehovah's Witnesses, Apostolic, Pentecostal, Charismatic churches, all just coincidentally showing up around the time the Laodicea begins. That's not a coincidence either. It's not a coincidence. And that became the massive saturation of the denominations of Christianity throughout the world that we know of today. So when you take a look at this, wherever God's moving, the devil is also moving. And there's no doubt in my mind that the devil has created massive schisms and splits within the Roman Catholic Church and also within Christianity in order to confuse people and make them turned off from hearing the gospel. Yes? What is CMA? CMA is Christian Missionary Alliance. So basically when you have, um, you know, Christian Missionary Alliance, um, uh, apostolic, Pentecostal, uh, friends churches, non-denominational churches, a lot of those churches will believe that you can lose your salvation. They kind of go within the Methodist, Nazarene, where you, they believe you can lose your salvation. Yeah. Yeah? What's the landmark for, like, the Laodicea? Like, there's, like, a landmark right there. Yes. The landmark is just the start of Laodicea. Is around that time, that's when you have, like, it's not coincidental that you have the start of these other crazy heretical branches of Christianity, like the ones listed here. You also have the Revised Standard Version that comes out in uh, 1881 um, and then propagated. Then you have the American Revised Standard Version that comes out a little bit later and all those things. Because what had happened, and this is amazing to me too, is that 
from about 1611, because if you were to take, I have a copy of the 1611, um, like a, um, a, it is a copy. It's almost like a printed copy. It's still in the Gothic type, which is what they printed the first King James Bible in off the printing press. If you were to take that Bible and you compare it to what you hold in your hands today, they are exactly the same. The only difference is, is some of the spelling. Because back in the day, instead of you know T's, they had F's. Instead of S's, they, did, they used V's. And, but it was normal. Like when you read it, you can actually read it word for word and it's exactly the same. So what you hold in your hands is the exact same as what came off the press in 1611. So when you look at this within church history, you have 1611, where the Bible is now mass-produced because of the invention of the printing press. It's propagated and populated throughout the entire world. And God uses it massively. I mean, more than any other time in human history, there is a massive missionary movement the world has never seen since from about 1640 until about 1850, 1900. And so from 1611 all the way up until 1880s, 1890s, the King James Bible does a bang-up job. How many years is that, roughly? 250, 300 years. So 300 years, the King James Bible does a bang-up job. God blesses it. People are getting saved. The Word of God is being spread throughout the entire world. And all of a sudden, around 1881, somebody's like, you know what? I think we need a new translation. Why? Like, but, I mean, what's the purpose? I mean, is God not using what we have? Has he not blessed it? Are people are all of a sudden just not getting saved because they can't understand it? Why would we need that? We don't. That's the simple answer. We don't. Because the argument is still true today. Ever since 1881, it started to open up the floodgates, and now there are hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of Bible translations that all say different things. Why? Because they say, well, we need something that's easier to read. Well, when I read my Bible, it's not hard to understand. There's a couple of words that are a little bit difficult, but if I just use a dictionary, look at context, it's really not difficult. I mean, really, really not difficult. But we also live in a generation that instead of people reading their Bible and believing it, they'll read their Bible and then open up a commentary and believe what that guy says about the Bible rather than the Bible itself. So I'm not surprised. But that's just what we live in today. So anyway, absolutely amazing. It's absolutely amazing. It's the devil. It's the devil. There's no doubt about it. So that's why it's a landmark. All right, so that's that. We are almost out of time. So here's what I want to do. I want you guys to take a look at the next few pages. So you have then Presbyterian. And I'm not going to go through these guys. Um, I wanted to hit Calvinism, but we're probably not going to be able to hit Calvinism unless we hit it hard next week. If you guys want to do that. I was going to do our Baptist history, but we kind of talked about our Baptist history tonight. I know, so I'm, I'm a little torn. But here's why. Because next week is going to be our last week for world religions, and I want to spend three weeks prepping for camp. I want to do some special stuff preparing for camp, and I think that's more important. So we can either do our Baptist history next week, which I've kind of already touched on tonight with some of these guys. You can do your own studying on some of these names. Or we can go through Calvinism. I hate Calvinism, so I really don't want to do it. But I'm passionate about it, so it'll be an intense class. But so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. If you want to do Baptist history, raise your hand. I know I could do that. Okay, Haley, don't feel bad. Okay, Woodrum girls. Okay, Rogers. All right, Baptist history. Okay.
Calvinism. All right, we're going to do Calvinism. Okay. <laughs> All right. All right, so we'll talk about Johnny Calvin and some of the stuff that he went through. Okay. All right, so we'll talk about that next week. All right, but Presbyterians, so if you just want to, we'll take a look at the doctrinal beliefs. So basically, Presbyterians, Protestants, they believe in salvation according to the scriptures, but they also believe in salvation by predestination, also called Calvinism. We'll talk about that next week. They believe in replacement theology, and all that means is that God is done with Israel. Israel disobeyed God, therefore they've fallen out of favor, and now the church has replaced Israel, and God will use the church, and he will no longer use Israel. Now, I've got a problem with that. Because if that's true, why does Israel exist today? I mean, God didn't have to allow their nation to come back into existence in 1948. But he did. He's not done with them. So they're wrong. And then, churches should be governed by an overseeing presbytery. And all that really means is, uh, like within our church, we don't have a higher council above Pastor Tom, Pastor Jane, myself. There's no one above us that tells us what to do. Like in a Catholic church, you have that. A priest can't just do whatever they want. They have to go by the, um, you know, the, the local bishops who then report to archbishops, who then report to someone at the Vatican in Rome with cardinals and all that. Uh, they can't do anything that is outside of that authority. It's the same thing in Methodist churches. Methodist churches do the same thing. Uh, a Methodist pastor, which is mostly female today, cannot do anything outside of a Methodist hierarchy telling them, yes, you can or cannot do that. Um, Same thing with Presbyterian, uh, Episcopalian, um, Assemblies of God are the same way. Yep. So there's a lot of that. Um, But we are an independent, fundamental, Bible-believing Baptist church. And when we say independent, that means autonomous, which means there's no other church that can tell us what we can or cannot do. We believe the Bible, we preach the Bible, we will do whatever the Bible says. When we started the church in Dover, they were an independent, and they are an independent, autonomous, independent, Bible-believing Baptist church. We do not tell them what to do. We have no authority to tell them what to do. They can do whatever they want. They can do whatever they want, and we can completely disagree with them, and that's fine. We can do whatever we want, and they disagree with us, and that's fine. It doesn't matter. We're independent. That's the point. And that's how it's supposed to be set up in the Bible, and there are some examples there in Acts, Titus, and 1 Peter you can look up later. But out of the Presbyterians came Church of Christ, Disciples of Christ, which they are whacked out. All right, congregationalism. So congregationalism is basically dead today. Um, but out of congregationalists came the Unitarian, Universalist, and Christian Science denominations. Um, if you venture at all within the Glen Oak area, there's a Universalist church right by the Leech House that they occasionally attend. I'm kidding. They don't. <laughs> they don't. On Thursdays, yeah. Yeah. Very inspiring. Um, but they, they believe that church government is independent and completely autonomous, which is biblical. So that's at least one thing they have going for them outside of all their doctrinal errors. Um, but their doctrinal beliefs can differ from church to church. And it's just kind of crazy. So then you got Anglicans, which is very close to Roman Catholic, but they do believe in the gospel according to the scriptures, which is good. Uh, they also hold to the creeds, which in my opinion are a very bad thing. Um, a lot of people uphold the creeds as a very, very good thing. I don't. And the reason why I don't is because all creeds are, are a statement that's already contained in the scriptures. That's it. They've just taken scriptures, reworded it in their own vernacular, and put it in a paragraph form. But they adhere to those as if they're the Bible. I don't do that. If I want to do that, I just go to the Bible. Why do I need a creed when I have my Bible? I just don't agree with that. Uh, They believe in the sacraments of baptism and communion, 
which is biblical. And the, the historic episcopate is locally adapted. That means a hierarchy of bishops that oversee congregations. Then you got the good old Methodists. They believe in the Bible, most of them. Not many anymore, but they do. Um, they believe in sin according to what the Bible says, which is good. They believe in salvation through Jesus Christ, which is A-OK with me. Uh, they believe in sanctification and the sacraments like we would with baptism and communion, but they believe in a connectional model of church government, and that's the same thing we've already talked about. So out of the Methodist Church came United Methodists, Salvation Army, Pentecostal, Assembly of God, Foursquare Gospel, the Church of the Nazarene, Holiness Movement, all those bad boys came out of the Methodist Church. All right, so Protestant summary. So if I were to boil it all down, here is my creed of the Protestants. In Protestantism. Okay. In 1517, Martin Luther's actions resulted in a domino effect that loosened the grip of power the Roman, Roman Catholic Church had on the world for centuries and consequently ushered in the movement known as the Reformation. These changes led to the rise of the British Empire and their, local, and their colonization throughout the known world. As it has been said of this time, the sun never set on the British Empire. So the same can be said of the 1611 King James Bible. Not only did the King James Bible spread along with the British Empire, but religious freedom combined with the King James Bible resulted in a massive surge in missionary activity that took the Bible to the ends of the earth. This is what is known as the Philadelphian church period of human history found in Revelation 3, 7 through 13. God's primary objective of preserving the Bible in English and spreading it abroad the face of the earth was brought to fruition because of the Reformation. And that is the truth. So boiling it all down, that is that. And we will bash Calvinists next week. All right? Any questions? I'll do it nicely, but I'm ticked off about it. Because I came from it, so... I got a little extra fuel and fire for it. Okay. All right. Let's pray. Let's get out of here. God, thank you so much for tonight. And even though we didn't open up the Bible a whole lot tonight, these details are very, very, very important. Um, You know, as Mark said, if you separate a person from their history, you can convince them to believe anything. And uh, we dare not be among those that are willing to be duped into believing heresy, uh, false doctrine, Um, another history that isn't true, whatever the case might be that would drive us farther away from finishing the mission that you've given each of us individually and together as a ministry. So I pray, God, that we would take these things to heart, that we would see and understand and really desire to understand all these details, not just to be uh, smart about it or to know more than others, but that we can be confident in the direction that we are headed as a church and that we know where we fit within church history. Because we have a job to do, and it's much easier to do the job when you have confidence. So I pray you'd help us to get that within our hearts and in our minds. Start preparing us for camp. We all need it. There's lots of distractions that are going on in my life, and I know in the lives of everyone in this room, to try to keep us away from having a fruitful time at camp and being attentive to the words that you want us to learn and the things you want to convict us of and the things you want us to change in our life. So I'm excited. I'm excited to go. I'm excited to hear from our friend Tony. Um, I'm excited for the messages that you're putting on his heart. I'm excited for the fun that we're going to have together, uh, the bonds that we're going to be able, be able to create together, and how you're really going to use this in the summer and in this, the following school year to come. So thank you, Lord. You are so good to us, and thank you for never giving up on us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stephen, real quick, make sure if you want to-
sign up.